raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I want the truth! Why don't you answer him? Welcome to another episode of Objection Your Fiction. I'm not going to use the exclamation point this time. I'm with Mike Flynn. This is Lee Bergstein. We're here, privileged, honored to be joined by Daniel Gershberg. Daniel is the uh, main partner, one of the main partners at KGMD Law. You are the guy there, right, Daniel? Pretty much. If you ask anybody else, the answer would be no, but I'm saying yes. Right. Well, this is you're, you're the guest here today, so we're asking you. If we had a door, my name would be on it. <laughs> I like that. So that's a good uh, way. We're going to do something a little bit unconventional today. Our first few episodes of this podcast um, have been focused on kind of a single film or TV show and digging into legal issues. Dan and I were talking about 90s sitcoms and the glamorous apartments that the characters in those sitcoms lived in in New York City. So we decided to kind of run through some of the more popular apartments, talk about the real estate issues that uh, are involved or that relate to the various apartments that those characters lived in. So we're going to do a run through today, talk through it. Might be a little sloppier than usual, a little more disorganized. So apologize in advance for this, but but it will be fun. Um, so oh, honorarium, right? Like this is there's no this is just this is free. I'm here for free. Uh. We'll talk about it off air. Okay. I'm ready, Lee. <laughs> Pregnant pause there. If you <laughs> typically what we do is if you come into the podcast studio, then we will mm-hmm. compensate you. But if you do it from your home, then there's no per diem. So Okay. I, I understand think you're, that. And I think you're fair. I think you're in your house, right? I'm in my basement, my 80s basement. Yes, I'm a little bit under the weather, so I didn't want to bring this to your office. Okay, I didn't want to bring the plague to your office. I'm doing it. It's a good. Here. You have a good radio voice going, Dan. Like I feel like, I, like when you get a little gravelly, it's it's good for this. Low grade. I try and get a low grade fever before any podcast appearance I do because it gives the like the appearance that I'm older than I am and significantly wiser. Yeah. So pro tips. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for that. So, so, Daniel, I kind of bungled the open. Do you want to talk for 20 seconds about what you do, your uh, area of practice? Yes. My name is Daniel Gershberg. I've been a practicing attorney for- Did I, for did I not say now. your name? Did I forget to even say your I name? Don't know what you said. I don't know what that <laughs> intro was. I don't know what that intro was. You said, okay. you said something about an exclamation point being left out. I did. That uh, was the main thrust. Yeah, What's your that name? Was, that was incredible. That's where- Things went sideways. Your name is what? Um, Daniel Gershberg. Okay, got it. I'm writing it down. Thank you. I am a partner at KGMD. We are a residential real estate transactional law firm. So we handle purchase and sales in plain English of apartments, condos, townhouses, et cetera, all across New York. Awesome. So let's get into some New York City real estate from 1990 sitcoms. How about it? Okay, I would love to do that, Lee. That'd be great. All right. So I, I want to start with probably my favorite TV sitcom of all time, um, Seinfeld. And mm-hmm. obviously, it probably has the most recognizable outside view of a New York City apartment in the history of TV. I guess that, maybe the Cosby show, 
are the two most well-known outside and full house outside real estate um, visuals. And uh, we're going to start with Jerry's apartment, although really it's Kramer's apartment too, because they both live in the same building, which a little bit of history. uh, It's located at 129 West 81st Street. And it's actually the apartment building where both Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, who's the creator of Seinfeld, lived when they were doing stand-up. And it's a it's a rental building, um, so there's not too much to talk to you from that vantage point. So so let's pretend as if they were living in a, a condo or a co-op building, um, and uh, the various shenanigans that they were engaged in during the course of the show took place. I guess high level, uh, Daniel. What what are your initial thoughts when thinking through how a condo board or co-op board might react to what took place during the Seinfeld years? I mean, clearly there would have been lawsuits, right? <laughs> if you're looking historically at the series itself, whether it's a rental building or whether they were the actual owners, I think you know there would have been an enormous amount of complaints and probably lawsuits between themselves and the neighbors, both that are in, on the adjacent sort of apartment or floor and underneath them. Like you could just imagine Kramer just constantly smashing the door as he comes in and comes out and causing massive um, noise disturbances over and over again. The flow of guests in and out, um, just anything under the sun. I mean, th- there would have been significant problems. Um, I think if you are a condo owner, so let's, let's instead of saying condo, let's, let's try co-ops, right? Because those are, let's say, 70% of um, real estate Manhattan are co-ops. There we right? go. Some inf- some real information that we're injecting into this pod. I like it. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. Okay. Um, and so- I'll Hold you to that. This is a co-op. And I think what you would probably find is, like you would in many places in Manhattan, um, a really stringent co-op board where- you know, shareholders in a co-op, you actually buy shares. You don't actually own the real estate of the apartment itself. You own shares in the corporation, um, which is very silly, but uh, it's what everybody does in co-ops. So the shareholders would come together and they would voice complaints to the managing agent. The managing agent would try their best to deal with the issues. They overwhelmingly would fail to deal with those issues. And then the board may at some point take action if things completely get out of hand. Um, and that action can include actually suing the shareholders over their conduct because I can't believe I know so much. Um, when you buy a co-op, you get these like stock certificates, which look really legit, but they're ones you buy at Staples for $4. The big green eagle on it, right? That looks like it's your yes. currency. Yeah. Yeah. Like people show them to you and then at the closing, like you get shown this thing, you just spent $1.2 million on for a really small place, probably um, that you'll outgrow way sooner than you think. Um, And you won't realize that there are worse noises that you didn't hear during your walkthrough, whatever. And also there's a proprietary lease that you sign at the closing. And that lease basically, in addition to the house rules are the rules of the road. And you have to abide by those rules when you live there. So it's not as if you can just, you know, throw your own burning man in your apartment because you bought the place. And so Jerry, George, Elaine and Kramer would have like serious issues um, living in a co-op because of all the shenanigans that they had. They would most certainly have broken various house rules um, 
and I think again be kicked out at some point. Even before we get there, I'm I'm trying to think about what the what the board interview would look like because that's another thing that anybody who's not familiar with co-ops, you actually get interviewed by certain board members and you have to be approved to even be allowed to buy in. So can you imagine the like the board interview for Newman or I mean Kramer actually? I could see Newman maybe like you know putting a lid Newman, on it. Newman would manipulate his way into the building irrespective of his actual personality. Newman had a consistent income. Yep. He worked for the Postal Service, right? And so the board would look at the financials, probably had a pretty decent retirement plan, health benefits that were taken care of, his DTI, his debt-to-income ratio was probably low because all he did was sort of deliver mail. He had no social life. Right. So <clears throat> absent you know, cryptocurrency bets or whatever, um, he probably had I good could, financials. I could, I, could see, and- I could see Newman being into NFTs big time. Yeah, I could see him like pushing them, like seeing them on an Instagram ad and then like starting to push them a lot uh, and get <laughs> caught up in the scam. Um, but then going after the person like wherever they are overseas. And Kramer would definitely be involved in that. He would. He Once, would. Un- unwittingly. Involved, they, they did like an arbitrage play on uh, like cans and bottles at one point where they like rented a school bus and they were going to take them to Michigan to, to get <laughs> more money to cash them in. And obviously, you know, they miscalculated on gas prices and everything else. But I, I, I think that Newman was in on that. Because at the yeah. end, doesn't the bus go on fire and, and it ends with, with Newman going, the humanity. It does. <laughs> I think so. Yes. Yeah, it the, does. The version of that, I think, might be like a cryptocurrency scheme. Uh, let me just say, I think absent a cryptocurrency scheme, Newman would win approval. I think Jerry probably wins approval. But let me say this. Jerry was... A stand-up comic, right? Didn't have income that he could really show. It's like sporadic income, right? So I don't think his parents had a lot of money, if I remember their place correctly. So he probably wouldn't have had a guarantor. I don't think. I mean, maybe George gets in, but I feel like George would be too annoying during that interview itself. Also, you know, unemployed for a large part of the series. I think until he worked for the Yankees, he was he was living in I think it was Kew Gardens where he lived with his parents. Correct. And, uh, yeah, Jerry, I don't know that Jerry could, could stop himself from making sarcastic comments and we're trying to lace some like New York city real estate knowledge in here. You know, if you're in front of the board, they're not supposed to reject you because they don't like you, but they can, and they often won't tell you why you're rejected. So if you're going for an interview, I I would say that like the the question of like what do you like to do in your spare time jerry would probably sit back smugly and say nothing that would be a perfect answer for a co-op board it's they don't want you doing anything yeah let me bring this up though in a contract right in any residential real estate contract during the board interview really throughout the process you have this obligation to act in good faith right and one of the things that people always tell purchasers that are going on board interviews, they say, look, even like you, you can't say crazy stuff because if you say crazy stuff, you're going to get sued. You can't say just awful things. And I think there may be claims, right? So let's say, you know, you're a seller and you're selling to Kramer and Kramer wants to buy in the co-op and Kramer's Kramer. So he says some of the craziest stuff in the world during the board interview, which sounds absolutely psychotic. The seller's attorney, once Kramer gets rejected, may in fact have a cause of action to go after the deposit because of Kramer's conduct, which 
maybe to him was very much in good faith, but to the rest of humanity, thankfully, was probably in bad faith and was absolutely insane. That's a really so, good yeah. yeah. So you have all these things. The workaround is if they bought via sponsor sale. So if the sponsor of the co-op, the, the owner of unsold shares, let's say the developer, whoever it is, um, sells the units, which they do sometimes here and there, um, the purchaser typically has to just put in the application. There is no formal board review process. So if these buildings just went co-op and the sponsor was selling these units, all four of these people, I'm, I'm counting Elaine here too, though I guess with Newman, that's five. All five of these people could get in without any issue whatsoever. Yeah, Elaine actually so had, a, Elaine had a good job. So I think Elaine would have been fine. Kramer, I believe, had no yeah. job throughout the duration of the entire series. As a matter of fact, at one point, he's carrying around a briefcase for a fake job. And they go, what's in the briefcase? And I think he says, crackers. <laughs> yes, that's right. <coughs> Showing that's up, he, he achieves like a, like a somewhat high level white collar job. I think that he's not getting paid for, and nobody knows. <laughs> he's there. He just shows up, yeah, all the time. He yeah. never said it, but I I think if, if just just knowing the kinds of characters that that live in New York City and and buy in some of these co ops, you know, we we won't name any clients. Like I could see him being from just just an absolutely filthy rich family, and just you know being a, like estranged from them. You never talk, you never hear about his family. His name's Cosmo Kramer. Yeah. I, I think this guy comes from real money and he just, he doesn't care. Mike, that's such a good point because I was just going to say the same thing. If he was incredibly wealthy and he would doing this, he was doing this, you would just chalk it up to him being like a trust fund kid. Yeah. He's a never grew up. Yeah. Eccentric, rich person. I never There's thought no of that. I think that. I think that is what was going on here. That's wild. Is this a novel concept? Is Larry David going to watch this and message me? Have you ever heard of an eccentric poor person? They call that person crazy. Yeah, they put they. You can be an eccentric rich person. Yep. That's awful. Yeah. With or without the use of. And he has a great. He has a great. Uh, He's a great palate for wines too. I remember he's going through all the different wines that he that he has knowledge yes. of. This all this is all coming together now. He 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 had the import. He had the connection for the Cuban cigars that he was selling out of his unit. Also, you know, probably a, a an eviction worthy. Event. Yeah. No, that's well, totally that's true. A good segue. I, mean, I so, think that Hold on, before that's, we segue, I want to run I through a couple. Of, we didn't get to make the joke that Lee is purposely using 90s tech. And if you're watching this on YouTube, he's got like a, a dance at best, like a Nokia screen uh, from like 2003. So it's a little bit better tech than like the mid 90s. But it, we're, well, like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, because I've been on phone calls from planes and it sounds just like that. And it's wonderful. <laughs> like the phones, when you're calling, like you just passed Hong Kong. Right. And you're like, oh, does this connect? That's what this feels like. But I kind of like that. Like it brings me back to when these right. sitcoms are actually playing. I feel like I'm roaming it's, it's like, on uh, it's Sprint like, right now and I'm looking for yeah. It's like the videos from Lost. Yeah. See, Lee, Lee, Where the, the Dharma Lee just went full Boost Mobile. Yeah. <laughs> He's just calling from some period of time. Lee, if you drop off, it, Mike and I will just handle it. We're here. Lee, I'm also, I'm just going to take this moment to, to call out that you went, I know we're a little bit off format here, but 
you, I, I was looking forward to having an opportunity to give my, what is it? You give like 30 seconds or 60 seconds to whoever is hosting it with you to describe the movie or the show. And then you just, you badger them throughout. So like Brad and Cooper, there's been yeah. great segments where you, so maybe as, as we queue up the next show, maybe I'll, I'll do my best. All right, let's move on. So what, what I wanted to do really quickly, since you talked about, since you talked about eviction is go through a few of the things that Kramer did over the life of his residency and talk about whether that would be grounds to evict. Cause it, I think you touched on this, Dan, but in a co-op, technically the corporation is the landlord, the lessor, and the yes. owner is the lessee. And if you violate the proprietary lease, there are, uh, there is the ability for the landlord to evict the lessee. So let's just go through a couple of things that Kramer did and talk about whether or not it would be grounds for an eviction. He runs a Merv Griffin inspired game show out of his apartment. What do we think? So he, he runs a game show out of his apartment. What do we think as far as like, you know, level, level of offense and likelihood of. So, so I will say this. I will say a couple of things. Oh, now Lee's coming in with beeping. This is wonderful. Um, I will say that a couple things. <laughs> One, I think that was me, actually. I was going to quietly let him take the bullet on that. This is amazing. What, what I will say is this. Uh, number one, I'm not a landlord, tenant, attorney, so it's difficult for me to, to, to give you my sort of idea of it. But if, if I was just going to give you my casual legal opinion of this stuff, I think running a game show out of your apartment is probably grounds – um, for the co-op to bring some sort of an action. Uh, you can argue that it's a commercial use of your space, number one. Um, number two, game show inherent. I mean, if there's money that's going back and forth, you could theoretically argue that there's some kind of gambling involved, um, that that's actually there. And when you have a game show, you're inviting lots and lots and lots of people um, into the space itself. So there's a possibility, though, I don't know how likely it is that there would be some sort of an action brought against them um, for this. One of my first clients, though, uh, was a tenant in a condo. Uh, when I first started, and what he was—he is now a chef that owns various restaurants. At the time, he was an advertising exec, and what he did was he had this love for cooking, and he decided to invite um, people to come over his apartment. He would cook for them, and he posted this on Craigslist. This sounds really dangerous. Um, for both sides, one, going to someone's apartment on Craigslist that's just invited you to dinner randomly, and two, having someone come to your apartment from Craigslist. But he had people come over to his house, and he cooked for them, and they just brought bottles of wine. And more and more people came. And he did this over a period of time, and then the New York Times caught this. And the New York Times ran a story on him, and the condo, uh, really the landlord, the building itself, tried to evict my client during that period of time because he was running a commercial kitchen and arguing that he was running a commercial kitchen. And they said that he needed various types of licensing to do this. And I somehow through sheer uh, luck and skill, 90% luck and maybe 10% skill, was able to get the case actually dismissed. So I don't think it's really a bright line if you're running a game show out of your apartment that they would face some sort of legal penalty or get kicked out. I think it would really depend on the circumstances of how big that game show got. 
obviously if it became a nuisance and there was tons of noise and, you know, people were just getting drunk and passing out in the hallways. Um, that's one thing. I don't know what game show that happens on, but it would be fun. Um, but I don't know that they would just immediately get kicked out for running one. Yeah. And and a lot of people in these co-ops have, have lawyers or they are lawyers and I could see them arguing it was just a game night, you know, yeah. and there's nothing specifically that's how many, how many house rules would say you can't run a game show out of your apartment. Um, especially if rare, like, yeah, see, it, it might, I might think it was pretty, you loud, pretty loud. Yeah. The noise thing might be, might be an issue. Yeah. The noise thing could be an issue, but you, it, it wouldn't just happen where you do this once and you get kicked out, right? You'd have to have a long documented history of it. And then the building attorney would have to be involved. And if the building attorney gets involved, then the person against which this claim is being brought would have to be responsible for the legal fees of the building attorney. And if they didn't cure that during that period of time, then then at that point they could bring a lawsuit. But let's talk about the practicalities here. During the time this show was on TV, there was a real sort of court system to speak of when they dealt with issues like this. Post-COVID, it'd probably take like three, four years for anything like this to get adjudicated, I would say. No? Like there's just no space a, in the courts to, to deal with this stuff. I, I think a little faster than that. And also I think um, they'd be able to remediate the issue fast enough that probably they wouldn't ultimately be evicted. You know, you just disassemble the game show and stop running it. So, um, but uh, well, I, I do agree with this. Soundproof for the parade. I believe there was also wild animals involved in the game show. So there were a number of issues. So the wild animals is a, is a bigger issue. Um, and I think that would be more dangerous and that would allow someone to allow a building to bring a cause of action quite quickly. Like what, what, I don't recall what, what animals were there. There was either like a, like a falcon or a monkey. I forgot which. Can't do it. Can't do it. You might be yeah. mixing up friends with the monkey, but that that sounds right. Actually, some kind of mm. exotic bird. It might have been a bird. It was a bird. Very few buildings allow falcons and monkeys anymore. I mean, you're because talking I about. Believe, in, I believe he invited like one real guest to the show, and I think it was like an animal person, along with like George and Kramer as the other guests. Yeah, I mean, again, falcons would would cause an issue. Uh, in, in a building. So I think they, they would have a problem. I, I also want to say, this is not limited to co-ops. If you brought a falcon or, you know, a bobcat in a condo, you would face a similar issue with that board as well. So it's not co-op specific, yeah, you, right? You, Technically, if you- We're you not advising, we're not advising you to, we're not, we're not advising you to, to only go condo if you want to bring a bobcat into the building. That's not a viable alternative. Yeah. Look, I think realistically speaking, if you are getting a Falcon, a townhouse is for you or a Bobcat <laughs> or a smaller bear, like a black bear, which is not as lethal and which in, in right. theoretical instances you could wrestle down if you needed to. Yes. That's not, not any of us, not any of us. Maybe you might could, but I certainly could not. There is, you know, I have to be honest with you. I mean, they're, they're not as large. I mean, they are large for sure, but my confidence level is higher. Like with a grizzly, it would be very difficult for me to stand my ground. With a black bear, 
that's maybe smaller, I could theoretically do it and, and get out of a situation if I needed to. Um, and they're in that bears respect. <laughs> All right. Well, a couple of other I'm a ones. Attorney. Just, yeah. yeah, we're, 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 we're really off the rails at this point and we're not even, we're not even up to the next show. So really quickly, some of the other things Kramer does, he installs a hot tub. He has guests visit from Japan and has them stay in the dresser drawers of his uh, armoire. (laughs) He opens an illegal cigar lounge. He puts up a screen door and calls his house Anytown USA. And I believe he puts lawn chairs outside potted plants, American flags, kids, somehow kids from the building ultimately vandalize the property as a result. Many of these things I think would be grounds for eviction. If not all It it would be a disaster to live next to any of these people in the building, whether it's a (laughs) co-op or a condo or anything else. I mean, like any of those things that you just mentioned, any newly minted attorney can probably very easily bring an action and, and get them out of there. Um, specifically stuffing Japanese people in your armoire um, <laughs> is, is an issue. Uh, yeah. For now. a number of reasons. So I don't want to I touch think... on that one for, 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 for too long. Uh, okay. I, I think actually, ironically enough, probably the hot tub would be the biggest violation because of the mm-hmm. interplay between that and the building systems and the energy drain that would actually probably cause a bigger issue than housing human beings in your furniture. So I would classify housing human beings in your furniture as being a bigger problem than a hot tub. But if we were going to yeah, talk no, about it the practical to be, to be clear, I think a board might have a bigger problem with the with the hot tub. Yeah. I would argue a board would have a bigger problem housing human beings <laughs> in your armoire. All right. Well, you know but what? I we'll take this offline. Be- we can we can put a survey out there and, and 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 the guests can decide because we're not going to be able to litigate this on this on this podcast. So let's do a survey. We'll, we'll do a survey. We'll do a survey monkey of it. Um, all right. So the next show is Friends, uh, also a very famous piece of New York City real estate. Obviously, Monica's apartment is kind of at the center, of the heart of the show. Monica and I guess Rachel's apartment. They live in it together, um, and. Uh, probably the most recognizable apartment other than the Seinfeld apartment in the history of, of TV comedies because of how massive it is. I remember the, the, the conversation surrounding it back in the day was how could a chef and a waitress afford an apartment of that size? I actually, I have an answer to that because I, and I didn't know this and I remember, you know, I probably wasn't paying attention when I was 15 years old and watching the show, but apparently it was a rent stabilized apartment that was passed down illegally from Monica's grandmother to Monica. And then Monica, I guess at some, at some point bribes the landlord to allow her to continue to stay there because quick background, you really can't pass down a rent stabilized apartment. There are succession rights. So if you live there for two years with the prior tenant and that person vacates or dies, then you have grounds to stay there. That's not what happened here. They just passed it down to Monica. So she's illegally there for the duration of the show, paying $200 a month for this massive apartment um, in, I think, the West Village. Yep. What's your question? There's no question. 
we give giving the disclaimer that that nobody on this is is an expert landlord tenant lawyer uh, yep. but do, this would be interesting in the 90s definitely correct after 2019 would this have just been an across the board rent stabilized building and it wouldn't make a difference anymore landlords hands would be cuffed anyway yeah if i if i remember correctly the 2019 uh, law changes that went into play essentially instead of having the rent stabilization linked to the actual tenant that was living there actually links to the apartment itself. So outside of really, really, really tiny circumstances, that unit, independent of who's actually living there, is a rent stabilized unit itself. Um, and that's why you see um, article after article of people that bought um, developers that bought rent stabilized portfolios that are taking just massive haircuts on them because there are just very few ways. I mean, the legislature went wild with this one and there are very few ways to destabilize a rent stabilized unit now. Um, and so Monica wouldn't probably wouldn't have to do any of that paying anybody off thing anymore because the unit itself would just be destabilized or I should say rent stabilized. Um, as opposed to when it was then, when you're rightly, where there was all these succession laws where you had to live there and, you know, landlords were like installing cameras at some point to make sure that that person was actually living there and not Airbnb and out and all this other stuff. It became, it was way more complex than it is now. Yeah. I yep. think that, I think the landlord even post 2019 would still want to get Monica out because I don't want to call it a scheme, but the typical scheme that landlords undertake in rent stabilized buildings, if they want to destabilize it, I'm putting that in air quotes because you're right, it's it's nearly impossible to do, is get the existing tenant out because then you can play all kinds of games with the status of the unit if someone there has no kind of institutional knowledge of the history of that particular unit. So I think there still will be an incentive to to remove her based on the fact that she wasn't there legally. What is crazy though, if you think about it, is what was her job? Monica was a waitress, right? No, she was a chef. Rachel was a waitress. She was a chef. Who's the who worked at the coffee place? Was it? Ra- was Rachel. It- that was Rachel. Rachel. Right. Rachel. It was Rachel. Yeah. yeah. It's good that you did. It's good yeah. that you did your home your homework before this this podcast. Dan. I read books. I'm not a sitcom guy. My wife you every know? night. I don't like to go to sleep with the TV on, but my wife does, so it, it that's what happens. Uh, but every night, it's it's Friends reruns. Without over and over. Yeah. So it's kind of like, even when I'm half asleep, a, a lot of these things just get in. I, I mean, I remember watching the show, but not as religiously as Seinfeld though. No. And when, when I heard that Netflix or whoever bought the rights to this for like a trillion dollars, I looked at my wife and I said, who watches this show? And she just left the room. She literally <laughs> left. Like, I haven't, I, it was really weird. Girl. Like I, I've never seen E.T. or any of the Star Wars things either. I just- no. I Strange, I strange childhood and strange child. Let's let's so, make this episode about you, Dan. Let's just let's talk about you. Let's talk about your, your I'm upbringing. Ready to do it, if you are, you have a couch. Um, you can go lay on. I have a recliner so here. I, I, it's totally fine. I I have a question for the group. Um, yeah. Suppose you were advising someone who was looking to buy this building, and Monica was the last holdout. Everybody else, this this is prior to 2019. Everybody else has vacated. Every unit's destabilized. And a buyer says, well, what am I going to do with this one rent-stabilized unit? It's the, it's the nicest unit in the building. It's the most coveted. It's the most valuable. What kind of advice can you give to someone to, to get Monica and Rachel out of there? Mike, you go first on this. We'll do good cop, bad cop. Who's All the right. good cop? Should I, I be the good cop or the bad cop? 
I'll be, I'll be, I'll be good cop. I'll be, you be right. bad cop. Good, because bad cop is easier. And I'll start with the caveat that one should probably not do any of these things, or definitely not do any of these things. Um, I guess, you know, I actually, I'm not even sure that this is as much of a problem. But it, you know, cash for keys or the old buyout moving yeah. costs. Uh, maybe that that falls into the good cop territory, and they just have to hope that they don't hire Lee Bergstein to negotiate the amount. Uh, it's one of his favorite things to do, I think, as a lawyer. Um, I mean, bad, we we've we've encountered this, right? You you hear about the uh, the bad landlord that uh, you know does makes makes conditions bad. You should definitely not do that. Can't change locks on people. Uh, can't harass them. What about that's arson? Are you allowed to? Are you allowed to commit arson? To I don't, I don't think so. I think that's limited circumstances. Depends on the. Don't try to make it uninhabitable. I, I would say usually it's about the money, and uh, if it makes financial sense and it's legal, just just pay them. <laughs> I was going to say so. Good cop and bad cop are the same. I was going to say the keys <laughs> thing too. I did that once. Um, a rent stabilized tenant came to me. It was a broker that I knew that I represented. And she said, Hey, the landlord wants to buy this. And I'd never done it before. And I said, look, I don't, she goes, just try it. And I said, sure. And I named just an obscene number and the landlord goes, okay. <laughs> and I was so taken aback and I started calling and I, like other attorneys, I was like, do you do this? And they said, yeah. And I said, this is it. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, basically, yeah. And I said, what am I doing? What? Why? What am I doing? And then it stopped. Like 2019 yeah. just stopped all that. I thought I had hit it, like just hit it big finally. Um, and so <laughs> before 2019, you would just have these egregious, idiotic negotiations with landlords, <laughs> and you would name obscene numbers. And they, if they said no, they would eventually say yes at some point to like maybe a little bit less obscene number. Um, and that's how you did it. You got cash for keys and you got people out. How, yeah, how much are, do you think, how much do you think Monica and Rachel would have got for their apartment? Where, where was the apartment? Well, Daniel, you've, you've never seen the show before. So Mike, what do you think? I've seen the show. There's Joey. Someone has, there's a Joey, right? And the Chandler, they dated. Joey and Chandler, that they'd have, they didn't date though. Well, Chandler and, and Joe, Monica. Joey, Joey, Joey and Chandler, I think. Joey and Chandler did appear to be dating. It just was never explicitly stated on the show. It was in the 90s, so they didn't want to okay. wait into that they, territory. They live across the hall in the same building in a much more normal but still really nice two-bedroom apartment that they probably couldn't afford because Joey yeah. was like you know an actor and uh, until he got on that soap opera, uh, I don't think he was making much money. Chandler was some kind of like marketing executive of some kind, if I remember right. But it's a really nice – it's, it's Grand Village. It's like a – Chandler, I think they always was like, he was doing pretty well in the white collar world and he probably could afford that. Uh, we could talk next about the episode where they make a bet and they have to swap. Uh, but this this apartment is like, you know, prime, I think West Village real estate. It's like a like a five story. Uh, Monica and Rachel have a, a terrace that I think you can only access through a window, but who cares? Uh, it's, it's a, it's a big terrace, uh, with like, it was, it was know, not illegal. It was definitely not a legal terrace. No, no, maybe not. It was, it was such an so. important part of <laughs> like, secret I think, that happened on the show though. 
I think if you, because I remember the layout that one door would open and then the other door would be there. So let's say there's 10 units across this space. It's five stories. So it's 10 units all together for the entire building. I could probably argue that they could get a million dollars for that unit. And that, that may seem high to some people. I think they could. Because if you do that, because remember, you're not buying out. Landlord's not buying out. The owner's not buying out every single unit. People have left. They've waited them out, et cetera. Right. So I think you know, if they sell that space for $15, $20 million, which they probably could do, a um, million bucks is not that bad to get somebody out. I, I was thinking- I, I could have gotten them a million dollars. No problem. You, you would have just said it and they would have agreed. It's the way my negotiations work. And if they said no, you would have said it again. I Let me introduce you to my negotiating style of come on. Okay, let's hear um, it. So when I started my practice, I did anything that, that came in. I started my practice right out of law school. And I took on various different cases. One of them, Lee, uh, were sort of small-time criminal cases. And when I negotiated you, with why, the DA- why are, you, why are you referencing me? Didn't you, you like you know about criminal law and stuff, weren't you? A oh, I thought, I thought I thought that you were implying that I was like a, a small time criminal. No, if okay. you were a criminal, I would never call you small. Lee, Lee went <laughs> from uh, he, he was he was in jail for a while, then he was selling hot dogs, and then he became yeah, that's not classic, classic New York rags to riches story. You'd be the racketeering guy. Yep. Um, so I negotiated with the DA over. Um, um, over the whatever of the case, the dispensation. It's not, I don't even know the terms anymore. Yeah, and this, they said, yeah. this sounds like a legitimate negotiation that you. It's fine. So, but the, the DA was like, and they said something like six months. And I said, come on. And they were sort of taken aback and they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, come on, come on. <laughs> and at some point they were like, all right, what do you want? And I was like, let's just do a month. They're like, okay. And I hung up the phone and I was like, this works. So the command strategy is actually significantly more powerful than you think. And the next time you negotiate with someone, you don't say anything back. You don't say anything back. You just go, you give a pause and you go, come on. And when they come back to you and you just go, come on. And that's it. You leave it. You leave it. So doing that, I probably could have gotten a million bucks. Minimum 750. I think you did a good job, Dan, of, of people yeah, from the DA, maybe Lee's office, but we could be doing a good job up to that point of convincing people that they need to hire real estate lawyers. And now everybody's just going to be like, yeah, listen, I heard this on this podcast. You just say, come on. And like the deal comes together. I don't know. It's, there's not much more. <laughs> you got to paper it. We got to paper the come on, but really it's the come on. <laughs> that's the, that's the beginning. Worth every penny. So I guess Thank the, you. the last question is at the end of the series, Monica and Chandler, they get married. Sorry. Spoiler alert then. Um, and they move to Westchester and they they just vacate this valuable asset, which probably is the most unrealistic part of the entire series, knowing what we do, what we know about the value of that asset. Would anyone actually do that? I mean, you would never move out of an apartment of that size where you're paying $200 a month. Absent having triplets, I cannot see any reason to leave an apartment like that specifically to go to this was in the 90s right 90s westchester 90s was like the wild west i mean it was undeveloped land essentially right that just had a couple of oil fields in the park <laughs> so there's just no way 
anybody's doing that. Chappaqua was the first, was the only place that had civilization during that time. And I think there was a few dozen people there. <laughs> settled by the Clintons and no one else had otherwise. There. Chappaqu- Chappaqua was settled by the Clintons in 1992. Established 1992. <laughs> they received a charter uh, from... <laughs> yeah, they have a plaque outside, like the first settlers of Chappaqua. Yeah. Clinton. They got the original and- certificate with the green eagle on it, like the co-op shares, and it was... For how Look, many hectares up in Chappaqua? They built up an entire area basically on their own in a really small period of time. People started coming. Oh, oh the Clintons are there. We got to move there. So, and then people started, you know, going beyond that. And actually, uh, we, while yeah, we're on the topic, the, beyond you know, the wall. Yeah, beyond. The, but but think about this: mid '90s. By by the time the show ended, in the late '90s, the the West Village was was really like a hot area. You think about. I think it. it I, I think it actually. And I think it ended early 2000s. Early two thousands, it was become it had already become untouchable, right? But like the the seventies, eighties, early nineties village, you wouldn't like it's similar to where it used to live, Lee, on on Avenue A. I mean, Tompkins Square Park used to be like the drug capital of of New York City. Yeah, who's so the, who, do think, who, do you, who do you who do you think made it that way? <laughs> Lee, it's no. Is that oh. a cleaning up the streets reference? I don't know. It's Cooper. Cooper made it that way. Who's Cooper? <laughs> Cooper on the podcast? Who's Cooper? Um, Mike, I Mike, Mike, you were making a good point, though. So I, I, I hinted. Yeah, in the nineties, I think you'd say I'm going to raise a family. I don't know what the crime rates were in the mid nineties uh, in the village, but they probably weren't great. And yeah, Westchester's I, looking pretty good. I believe that during that time, murders in the in the in the early nineties, murders started coming down. Um, I think it first began under, uh, began under Dinkins and then Giuliani. Murders started coming down and started getting safer. But by no means was it even close to what it is now, right, in terms of safety and everything else. But I still think if you have that kind of place, you know, you don't just abandon it. I don't know why they why they would kind of abandon it um, and do yeah, nothing. Yeah, you, you, just, you just give it to – I think that um, Phoebe actually asked for it or somebody else asked for it. And they decided, no, let's just leave it vacant and move on. I mean, it was good from a narrative perspective, but you would have at least tried to pass it over to a, a friend or a family yeah. member. Yeah, Phoebe could have yeah. used it. I feel like everybody else by the end of the series is like they've moved – like Ross and Rachel are together and he's doing whatever, archaeology. He's He's got his apartment near NYU, wherever he was professor. Uh, Joey – I think he he made it as an actor, right? He had his own apartment. No, Joe, Joey moves to California so they could do the spinoff show, Joey. That's what At happened. At the end of the series? I, At the end of the series. Oh, oh, that's right. They had a spinoff. How incredible was it, though, that all, like, all of my friends are in law or finance, and they're horrendously boring. <laughs> How incredible is it that you had like a chef, a waitress, an archaeologist, whatever Phoebe was <laughs> – um, Wait, she's, yeah, I don't know what she was. A, guitar, a guitarist? Yeah, a marketing for person. A while, didn't she? I don't know. She was. I think she drove She drove like a 1950s vintage yellow cab, which maybe it wasn't her job. I, I don't know. She was <laughs> How the, cool is that? Yeah, she was the Kramer of, of Friends. If you if you cast this show right now in Tribeca, it would be like private equity, investment banker, parents did well, lawyer – Lawyer that wants to go into private equity, lawyer that wants to go into finance, etc. That would be the, the whole cast. 
That'd be the entire cast. Yeah, that's it. Well, I think we should start writing it tomorrow. So, um, so I wanted to just kind of quickly, we have just a few minutes left, just run through the other shows that came to mind. Um, there's mad about you that actually took place in a co-op. Um, the one issue that came to mind there is they had a dog. So was that a, a pet friendly building or not? And certainly we've seen cases where someone has a dog and a co-op board wants the dog out for the way the dog's acting. So I think the dog would implicate a variety of issues there. Um, Can I bring up one thing? Cause I think it's important here. Sure. Yeah, of course. Every, I mean, this, this is, this is all critical stuff. So go ahead. For the thousands that will be listening on the way home. I hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. And many people overseas. Um, there In many co-ops, there are dog interviews. And this is a real thing. Yeah. New York Times covered this in the story. Is many co-ops will require, if you put a dog on the application, that you bring the dog along with you. And one of the issues with this, and this is a real thing, is that uh, some hyperactive dog breeds like Labradoodles or Pugapoos or whatever they awfully combined dogs now, um, they are crazy. And so the owners would give them sedatives uh, to calm down, except you couldn't give the dog too much sedative because one, the dog could die. And that would be terrible under an interview. And two, the dog could just be so right. droopy that like something would just seem completely off. So they had to figure out like the actual proper mix of that for the dog to actually seem docile, but be alive. Um, and so that was a thing. And if you have dogs, it's still a thing. It's some people are crazy. Um, if you have dogs and you're applying for co-ops, just know that you may actually have to bring the pet um, to be interviewed as well. There's no questions for the dog, but the dog has to sort of be there. Once That's in a while, a board member will be like, sit or treat and see how responsive they are. To the, that, to could the dog. Be the, that, that could be the basis for a denial. That could be very – I mean, it would, like the, I'm sure there have been situations where everyone's like, uh, you know, he's – and she's cool, but that dog, I don't want to deal with that dog. Uh, right. Like a yappy dog or something. You And you just won't, co-ops don't have to tell them why. I mean, there's bills that have been introduced, I believe, and they've all failed. And I wonder if those bills will shift or change where, you know, again, you brought this up before, a co-op does not have to tell you why that person has been rejected. But if that does change, it would be amazing if the rejection was based on the, the yappiness of the, of the dog. Lee, Lee will continue to, poke at that in the court system. Yeah, we're, 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 we're poking at it right now in the court system, Dan. I'll let you know what happens. Okay. I'll be here. So I guess there, there's a couple others. I mean, Liz Lemon lives at a, in a co-op on Riverside Drive. Actually, that's from 30 Rock. Will and Grace actually lived in the building across the street, uh, 155 Riverside, which was a rental building. Um, two more that I want to talk about really quickly. The nanny took place at 7 East 76th Street, which is a townhouse that sold in 2017 for $33.2 million. Um, I'm making a face, but that's what it sold for. That seems uh, about right, actually. If, if I remember that show, that was a legit wealthy guy, right? He Was was he a playwright or something? I, I think he, he was a billionaire. I don't think he was a playwright. And she was a nanny? She was in, that, she, well, yeah, that's the name of the show. She was the, she was pulled from Queens and brought in to be the nanny, and that was the whole joke. Was like the nasally accent and introduced to like this high culture. I'm gonna Google it because I I think what was he Mr. Sheffield? I haven't seen any show. This is crazy. You gotta see the nanny. 
I have to and see then, the name. And then the last one I wanted to talk about, and then we can do a big pack picture wrap up. Uh, Sex in the City. Um, Sarah Jessica Parker's character lived uh, at 64 Perry Street, which I guess is a very famous building for celebrities. She paid $700 a month for a rent-stabilized apartment at 64 Perry Street. She was actually like a pretty accomplished writer, journalist on the show. Um, I know that one of the arguments that landlords have made with respect to the rent stabilization law is that there's no income requirement. If you if you luck into a rent stabilized apartment, you can be a billionaire or make nothing and there's no remedy. So this is a good example of someone who was probably pretty wealthy living in a, a really inexpensive apartment. I will make a counter argument there that she was a freelance writer, if I recall correctly. And or she, she was home, right, and then she became an author of a book. But you're talking about income that would come in and come out, right? It wasn't a stable sort of income as you would find in a lot of professions. And the ability for artists and writers to be able to move into rent stabilized apartments gave the city its heartbeat for a really long period of time. Um, that one could argue the city loses when you get rid of these things and you only rent you know, very expensive apartments to high earners. So I think, but she was a shrewd, her character was very shrewd. I can't ever see her character walking away from that apartment. You know, I don't think she'd sell it. I think she'd probably give it to like another writer or something that was coming up under her wing or something along those lines, something cool. Uh, but I don't see her doing the Monica and whoever her husband was. Well, she, she she marries like the wealthiest guy in the city, so I think she does abandon the. I think she ultimately abandons the apartment. Although I don't, I didn't watch this show all the way through the end. But that's the guy that dies in the Peloton. That was in like Dirty Ash. You are just you're spoiling every show for for people who are listening to hour two of this podcast. Who is listening to this podcast that is going to go watch Sex in the City right now and go that guy, Lee Bergstein the fourth. Just spoiled this whole thing. <laughs> spoiled this whole thing. I invested weeks into this show. Just told me so, right away. So what do you, you know, we went through a bunch of, of shows and, and you can pull another one if you want. What was the most kind of realistic depiction of the New York City real estate, New York City apartment life in 90s, early 2000s? We'll, we'll go through as a group. Dan, you start. What do you think was the most realistic depiction? I think probably Seinfeld because you did have, I mean, like it it had to be based on the kernel of truth where you did have these apartments. None of them had big apartments whatsoever and they weren't fancy in any way whatsoever. And you just had these people like living there in different professions that were doing their thing. And yeah, they were kooky, but most of the city was kooky. So it didn't seem completely crazy to me to have, Someone that worked for the postal service next to a stand-up comedian, you know, next to someone in the marketing, et cetera. I think that is significantly more believable for whatever reason for me than friends, because those apartments are just just ginormous apartments. Um I've never seen the nanny, but I believe you. Um and Sex in the City, I just remember her apartment. I've only seen a few episodes. I was probably the wrong guest for the show, but yeah, in terms of sitcoms. Um, but I imagine, like, I think either Seinfeld or Sex and the City were were legitimate sort of things that I could see happening. Mike, yeah. what do you think? 
I would, I would agree with that. I think that, uh, I don't remember what the couple in, uh, mad about you did for a living, but that was, I think they were punching above their weight with that apartment. Um, I think, I think that Helen Hunt's character was successful, but a young professional, but successful. And he did something artsy also. I don't remember what it was. I think it was, he was a, a freelance filmmaker. Yeah. And, yeah. and Will and Grace, he was a, he was a single lawyer, right? He was like a corporate lawyer. Will. Yes. That, that was maybe realist. Cause that was a very nice apartment if I remember right. And he had rich friends, right? The, I don't remember the woman's name who was like a, an heiress that was, would come in and like do color commentary, but he, he probably had the money for that. Uh, they had a piano. Did they have a piano? They had a, they had a grand piano in their living room. Yeah. It's the only yeah. I remember about that show. Was, was that, was also, other, that was also that was a co-op. It, it wasn't clear. That's the only, from doing my research, wasn't clear to me whether they owned or rented. Everybody else rented. I think it's possible that they owned that, that unit. They still would have needed to carpet it. Yeah. Oh, that's, we didn't even talk about that with Kramer stomping in or just all yep. the. Most co-ops require, it's a, it's a very old sort of thing, but most co-ops require 80% more yeah, to be carpeted. Almost no one does it, but it's a little thing that you can sort of say like, did you carpet your floor? And they go, no, I'm going to sue your ass. That's it. <laughs> well, Dan, we've, we've taken up way too much of your time through a variety of tech difficulties and other issues. Um, but I think this is a fun episode. We'll have to have you come back and talk about um, something that actually suits your area of expertise in a future episode. But this was super. We dropped some real nuggets in there. And by we, I mostly mean Dan. Maybe we can discuss maritime law next time. Sure. What happens to cargo shipments outside of Turkey? We could do that. If you have a movie or TV show where that happens, and I'm happy to talk about it. We could do it right now, back to back. What's the one with uh, Tom Hanks where he goes like, uh, I am the captain? Oh, That's um, Captain something. It's called Captain, Captain Phillips. Captain, Captain Phillips. Phillips. Yeah. Anytime you want, we can dissect okay. that. So we'll do Captain Phillips in five minutes. But for now, um, Dan, where can uh, the two or three people who are still listening to this episode <laughs> um, find information about you or what you do or uh, hear your thoughts on the real estate market? KGM.law and our Instagram handle. Um, which is going to receive hate messages is KGMD law at KGMD law. Okay. But you That's don't want to give any, any of your personal information out, just the, the corporate information. Who's reaching out to me from this? With I don't know. Maybe some, Who's maybe a, in what world? Let maybe. him reach out to you. You'll be my buffer. Anybody that wants to talk to me, just Lee or Mike first. All right. Well, that's the end of the episode, Dan. It was great talking to you. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.